0: now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But, just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music! This for University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision. Something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking, you've got 9 to 1 grades on every question so students can monitor their progress, and you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits though are the strive for five and climb to nine pages in the foundation and higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiner's reports. Now you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the revision guide and workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths and there's a link to that in the show notes page or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. Today's episode of the podcast I was lucky enough to speak to Matthew Inglis. Matthew completed his undergraduate and postgraduate studies at the University of Warwick and following a period as a research fellow at the Learning Sciences Research Institute in Nottingham, Matthew took up a lectureship in Loughborough in 2008. Now in this conversation we discussed things like how exactly do you conduct educational research, what about effect sizes in the EEF reports and how exactly should teachers engage with research. Now as someone who arrived relatively late in my career to the wonderful world of educational research and then subsequently became a little bit obsessed with it, this proved an incredibly important conversation for me. It's really made me reflect upon which pieces of educational research I choose to use and how I can go about evaluating them much better than I currently do. As a result, I think this is one of the most important conversations I've had and also one of my favourites. Matthew's absolutely fantastic. So I'll be back at the end with a few of the things I've been thinking about since speaking to Matthew. But for now, enough of me. Let's get cracking. Okay Matthew, so we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why?
1: Um, well, it depends on how how mathematical you want me to be, I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> go as far as you want, you um, go for it. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I think normally I would say I quite like the number seven um, because when I was a kid, my favourite footballer uh, wore the number seven. So I've always been quite attracted to, to, to seven. Jimmy Carter, he was a, a right winger in the... Um, early to mid '90s, he was he was very good. Um, I guess I'm yeah, who, back- who
0: did who, who did he play for? Jimmy? Well,
1: he, yeah, not the not the president. Um, <laughs> uh, he well, when I was watching him, he played for Portsmouth. But before that, uh, he played for Arsenal and Liverpool and Millwall, I think. Um, wow. Yeah, he had a couple of seasons at Portsmouth. It's very interesting guy actually, because it transpired uh, he gave an interview a few years ago where he revealed that he was the first Asian to play Premier League football. But um, no one noticed because he didn't have an Asian name, and he kept it quiet because he was worried about racism.
0: Wow, crazy. that's a good, good fact.
1: It's strange, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. This sort of big achievement, and, that he just kept quiet.
0: Jeez, mm-hmm. and you said that so seventy kind of is, is that your, your kind of full-on mathematical answer? If you want no, to well, no, go a bit deeper,
1: you are you familiar with the number Big L? I, I imagine... Big, Big L. Big L? Yeah. No, no, I like
0: it already. Uh,
1: so there is this sort of strange subgroup of philosophers and mathematicians who don't believe in infinity um, on the grounds that uh, it seems very implausible that you can just keep adding one to numbers forever. You know, you've, you've kind of run out of time. Um, and these people are called strict finitists. And they're, they're sort of fascinating because... they spend their time trying to work out how you can formalize a version of the natural numbers, which has a biggest number, you know, so you just can't add one to it. And they call that number big L for sort of large. (laughs) It's a very large number. Right. Um, But it's interesting because then you, you can end up sort of whole very, very minor pursuit, but there is this sort of branch of mathematics research where they spend their time working out how, whether you can, for example, you know, do some version of real analysis Without requiring the assumption that in the the natural numbers go on forever, um, and whether you can kind of uh, set up a system of axioms that are as consistent as the normal system without with, with this big L constraint, um, it's just kind of fun. You know, it's sort of this strange way of spending your time, but I think it's kind of because actually, when you think about it, it is kind of implausible that you can just keep adding numbers forever. Right? No, <laughs> no one can do that. That you you die before you got even very, um, very large at all. So, you know, when, when you use the number five, are you talking about the number five within, within the set of, within an infinite set? Or are you talking about the number five within a finite set? And probably you're talking about it within a finite set. So, you know, anyway, so that, yeah, I guess that's my, that's my slightly oh. more mathematical
0: answer. I will tell you what Matthew that, that that's a very good answer for for a number of reasons one I've, I've never heard of it before so straight away it's, it's, it's a big tick there but two there's, there's kind of a bit of a an informal competition going on this podcast for who has the largest favorite number and the pre <laughs> the previous because we've never had infinity mm. but the previous winner of that I think Dylan William when he was on first time around he was coming in with Graham's number and he was going pretty big with with that one yeah but big big L's got to beat that right big L so L is, think we, by
1: definition the largest number yeah so I definitely win that um, very strong and if anyone very ever strong. tries to say infinity you can just deny it
0: exists <laughs> I like that very good okay well question number two then what was your favorite topic in maths as a student?
1: Um, I guess kind of related actually so when I was an undergraduate I really enjoyed doing the courses on the foundations of mathematics so questions about how to uh, how to sort of uh, construct the rationals and construct the reals from sort of very foundational minimal assumptions um, which just seemed like a really interesting, interesting task, really. So if you you know if you're worried about what a real number actually is, how can you how can you sort of um, how can you put that on rigorous foundations? I always thought those were quite good fun, those sort of courses
0: it's really interesting so i again i admitted this on the podcast not not too long ago and it it caused a bit of a twitter storm so i did economics at university and again i feel a bit of a bit of a charlatan running this this maths podcast but one of the things i always re, not regret, because i absolutely love doing my economics course and there was plenty of maths in there but i missed from my friends who did maths degrees, the kind of almost kind of philosophical side of maths that ne- that never found its way into GCSE or A level or further maths or anything like that, but then starts to come into play fairly early on in in university degrees, and it yeah that that was the bit that I think I would have really really enjoyed because it, it's not as cut and dried as it first appears, is it? Well, when no, absolutely you know,
1: not. But... No, I mean it's yeah, I mean the, the, for, throughout history there have been really quite big changes of. um changes in belief about what it's reasonable to assume and what it's not reasonable to assume and then when you suddenly start questioning things like whether there are real numbers or not um how how you go about resolving that is a big interesting question both philosophically and mathematically and also historically how how that happened in the history of maths yeah absolutely
0: geez okay well uh question number three then what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research
1: yeah again i i'm kind of Depends a bit on how realistic you want me to be. I mean, <laughs> you know, I would love to be like a world-class snooker player. That would be my, my perfect career. Um, but I simply don't have the skill set to do that. So I'll, I'll put that to, to one side. Um, I would quite like to be a journalist. I think it would be quite good fun to be a journalist. Um, maybe some kind of political interviewer or something. I've always thought that would be... I, always, I have quite strong opinions about who, which, which interviewers do a good job and which don't. And I always think it would be... Quite, quite good fun to try try my hand at that and see if I can I can um, be one of the ones I think are good or
0: not. Did you have strong opinions about podcast interviews? I'm, a bit on, I'm on edge already, here, Matthew, to be honest with <laughs> you. I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll look forward to it. All right, well, um, can you just give listeners a bit of an overview, Matthew, of your, of your career to date? Where, where did it all start for you and how did you get to where you are now?
1: Yeah, so I did an undergraduate degree in, in maths at, uh, at Warwick. Um and I enjoyed that by and large, but come the end of that, I didn't really know what to do um, with my life, and I, as I think quite a lot of people who do masters end up doing, they just sort of are grappling around for something to do and, and um, pick a pick a masters course that seems interesting. And I ended up doing a masters course in mathematics education at Warwick as well, uh, which at that point was um, mostly run by uh, Eddie Gray and David Tall. Um, and I just really enjoyed that. So I, they, they, their course was kind of interesting because it, it combined um, quite uh, low level, you know, how children add up kind of questions with also quite advanced how undergraduates think about undergraduate mathematics questions, which um, I think was quite unusual at, at the time. And I quite enjoyed that. So I, I did my master's there. And then during that, I, I applied for some PhD funding and was very lucky to, to get it. Um, So I spent three years doing a PhD at Warwick on um, logical reasoning um, in undergraduate mathematics. And then I moved to the University of Nottingham, where I had a wonderful time as a postdoc for a few years, um, working in the Learning Sciences Research Institute. Um, And I was really lucky to get a research fellowship there, which allowed me to do anything, essentially anything I wanted. (laughs) Um, You know, work on any topic that interested me. And that's where I met um, Camilla Gilmore, who is um, also at Loughborough. And then I I, um, got a lectureship at Loughborough a long time ago now, maybe 12, 12 or so years ago now. And I've just been there ever since.
0: Nice, fantastic. And and now, what's your role with regard to the uh, the, the research, the, the Maths Education Centre?
1: Well, so Camilla and I are co-directors of this new Centre for Mathematical Cognition, um, which is a, a new research centre that um, has we set up about a year ago now with some funding from Research England, who are one of the ways the government funds research. Um, and that has allowed us to expand a lot. So that was a big big grant which funds um about 12 new academics um as a sort of startup um and then the idea is that by the end of the three-year period we've sort of increased our our size and capacity and income and so on so that that center can, can become self, self-sustainable over the long term so that's been quite a lot of fun working to set up the um the center for mathematical cognition and working out um I mean, quite challenging as well, but it's been quite good fun to to sort of uh, have a centre that's really focused on the things you think are important.
0: Absolutely, it, it seems to be an all star lineup as well. We've been, we've been lucky enough to speak to, to some of them on on this series, and it's just. Again, a fascinating range of interests and stuff. So, yeah, absolutely brilliant stuff. Well, before we dive into uh, research in particular, Matthew, just an opportunity for you to share your favorite failure. So this could be a moment from any part of your professional life or your research in particular. But I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and what you learned from the experience.
1: Um, Yeah, so I think an interesting example of this would be when when I first um, employed someone as a research uh, assistant, I won't tell you who, because <laughs> but when I, when I first employed someone, which is I, I, yeah, it's a pretty stressful experience employing someone for the first time, because, you know, you've got this, this junior person you're, you need to sort of be supportive of, but also make sure all the work gets done and whatnot. Um, she, we were doing this project on, on early number processing, and she came up with this idea for an experiment, which we should, she thought we should do. And I thought it was a really, really terrible idea. Um, you know, a really bad idea, almost certain to fail. Um, and I thought, thought about what I should do because I didn't want to sort of say that to her. You know, I thought, oh, this would be really discouraging, this enthusiastic new research assistant um, coming along with her, her, what she considers to be this, this good idea. And what I, what I thought was this terrible idea. So I just said, OK, yeah, go, go and do it. Um, and it turned out to be a really, really good experiment. It was really interesting. It led to some really interesting findings. Um, and it, I was just totally wrong about it. And it really made me, you know, I thought I was, I was being, you know, sort of this patronizing, you know, okay, I'll let her fail gracefully and then she'll listen to me more in future. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just totally wrong about it. And it made me think, oh gosh, you know, I really shouldn't trust my intuition about, about, um, about these things as much as I was.
0: Um. It's difficult though, right? Because I assume in in a role like that, you obviously you can't say yes to to everything. So, yeah. if, how's it changed how you evaluate stuff now?
1: I think it's changed. So I much more think about the cost of doing something. Mm. You know, so if this was quite a small experiment, we could probably run it in a couple of weeks. It wouldn't really cost very much. It wouldn't take many participants. Um, so things like that, I guess, I'm much more willing to just say, "Yeah, go on then. If you really want to do it, go for it." Um, and just see what happens whereas you're right I mean if, if that had been a you know a two-year longitudinal study obviously you can't you can't be quite so so flexible with with such things um but yeah no I mean it was a real eye-opener that though because I was so confident about it <laughs> I remember and I still haven't told her actually so I, I don't know if she's going to be listening to this but if, if she I, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't know that that happened yeah
0: well, uh, it's out there now. That's fantastic. Um, right. Well, before we um, dive into to, to research, research specifically, I wonder if I can just ask you a general question, um, Matthew. And I've been I've been trying to kind of eye up out the ten guests. Who who am I best pitching this to? And I think I think you're the man for this. So one, um, so just a bit bit of background, Um, I taught, the first 12 years of my teaching, I I didn't really engage with research at all, and then these last four or five years, primarily from starting the podcast, I've become a little bit obsessed, and I'm reading everything I can, and so on. One of my, one of my kind of early kind of thoughts about mathematics, well, research in general, education research in general, but particularly maths research, is that, it must be so difficult to, to conduct research, like valid research compared to a scientific experiment where you can be really careful, like isolating your variables, keep things constant, just change one thing, observe the outcome. Whenever it comes to research with regard to education, it seems to me that your choices, you either make it so artificial, like you, you, you remove all the, all the kind of classroom elements and you do it in a laboratory where you, you're really in close control over the variables. But then, of course, you don't get the realism versus you do it in the classroom where it's very hard to pinpoint the effects of something and so on. Is, is, is that a concern? And, and, and how do you get around that?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. So, um, I mean, that is certainly is in some sense a concern. So I think it depends on what you think the point of an experiment or a study is. Um, so there's a really wonderful paper by um, a guy called Mook um, who wrote this fantastic paper in the 80s. Um, called in defense of external invalidity, which is essentially what you're saying, right? So if, if um, people would normally say, if you sort of have a very artificial setting in a, in a study, then that is isn't an, an externally invalid study. Mm. And it's going to be hard to generalize that to, um, to the real classroom. And Mook's point, and I think he's totally right about this, is in almost all situations, when you have a study like that, You're not actually trying to generalise the result to the classroom, right? So, um, one way of thinking about uh, a sort of artificial study is that you're there not to test some finding which is going to generalise to the classroom, but you're there to test a theory. You know, so you've got some theory of learning. Um, You know, if you ask kids to generate explanations for themselves, that's going to improve their learning. Say. And you want mm. to test that theory in a in whatever context that is um, going to give you the cleanest test. Mm. And all you're going to all you're generalising from that test is whether you've got additional support for your theory or you haven't. Right? You're not worried about the real yes. world at all. Um, and then you can keep doing experiments like that. And you can keep bolstering your um, bolstering your evidence for your theory. And then where does the real world come in? Well, the real world comes in. You, you try and apply the theory to the real world, right? So at this point, because you've done so many of these testing experiments, you're, you're pretty convinced that your theory in some absolute sense is right. Yes. And then you just want to apply that theory to the real world. So you're not trying to generalize from the artificial context directly to the real world. You're trying to generalize from the artificial context to your theoretical understanding. And it's the theoretical understanding you want to apply. And obviously, you want to apply that in a different way, probably then you've you you know it'd be strange if you wanted to apply your theoretical understanding in the real world in the same way that you've set up this perfect situation for testing your theory um and not you can't you know not all research situations are of that sort but I think quite a lot are um and it, it means I think people worry a bit too much about artificial research environments um so I think yeah as I say so it's that the, almost always, if you have a very artificial situation in which research is conducted, the attempt is not to generalise to the real world directly. It's to, to gain a theoretical understanding. And of course, you know, a theoretical understanding of how we learn should apply in the classroom just as much as it applies in some artificial situation, right? I mean, it'd be very strange if humans learn um, radically differently. I mean, you know, obviously there's different factors and you need to think about that when you're applying it. But a theory of how we learn should apply in every situation, not just one.
0: Yeah, that, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. About that it's, it's, it's a really strong point, that Matthew. The, the the thing The thing that kind of not confuses me, I, I don't know what the right word is. Concerns me, I guess, mm. is that I, I don't know whether this is, is is just me as a maths teacher, or whether this is kind of teachers in general or humans. But you're always looking. Well, I, I certainly, when I read a paper, I think right, okay, that that is. Adv- My takeaway from that is that I should try this out in my classroom. And if I do, maybe it's going to have a certain positive outcome on my students. And then whenever you take something like like Hattie's Mm -hmm. uh, meta-analysis and effect sizes, then it's even kind of quantifiable that if I try this, this may then result in whatever increase in in years of learning and, and so on and so forth. But that's when it becomes problematic, doesn't it? Because as you say, it's, you, you can almost kind of validate your theory in this, this, this kind of external setting removed from the classroom. But then as soon as you then start trying to apply that within the classroom, then as a teacher, you, you are, you're out of control of all the other yeah. variables. So sometimes, like I found myself reading a theory and thinking, wow, I really like the sound of that. But then when I've tried to apply it, it doesn't seem to have worked. And then I'm left questioning as a teacher, has it not worked because the theory hasn't worked? Have I not applied it yeah. right? Or are there other mitigating circumstances or the variables that have messed it up? I mm. think that that seems to be quite a challenge for a, for a teacher. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think, so there's several things to say about that. I mean, firstly, I think Hattie is an example of someone who doesn't adopt the kind of theoretical So Hattie does try and generalize direct to the classroom from Mm. from findings. I think that's really problematic. At least his version of that, I think it's very problematic for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think there are certainly um, examples of research that tries to do that, but they're pretty rare. So I, I, and I I also think that the, the issue you're, you're hitting on is exactly right. And I think we don't devote enough research to it. Um, So, it seems to me that once you've, you've done this sort of basic lab science, you could call it, I guess, trying to develop your theoretical understanding of how people learn, then there's a really big job to be done um, to do sort of design research, which tries to implement that effectively in mm. real world settings. And that's a big challenge, right? Um, that's a complicated task for all the reasons you give. And... We it's it's well it's it's difficult because it's very hard to know well, it's quite hard to persuade people to fund that kind of research because it's it's not it's very, very applied research. I don't think I mean there are you know there are good examples of design research, um, including from from the Shell Centre at Nottingham, I think is probably the best example mm. of, of that. But it's quite a skilled, it's I mean it's it's a real skill. So it's it seems to be quite hard to, you know. So if you think about someone like Malcolm Swan's tasks, it's very hard to know how you would teach someone to produce Malcolm Swan-style tasks. Yes. Um, and so you've got this extremely um, insightful designer here, who has all of this sort of craft knowledge in his head. How how do we turn that into a bigger a bigger industry of producing research-informed teaching materials, I, I don't have a good answer to that, and we don't really spend much time on it. Um, as, a, as a research community, I don't think we spend enough time on it. But I think that's a slightly different issue to, you know, I would say the point of that kind of research, design research, is to take the theoretical insights from this sort of basic research and turn them into usable uh, materials for teachers and other practitioners um, but I, I think it would be a mistake, although some people do do this, I think it would be a mistake to assume that that basic science should, should skip that gap, you know, cause that gap mm. a big, important gap that deserves thinking about seriously. Um, you know, so if I, every study I did, I, I tried to make up some teaching implication, you know, I would just end up making stuff up, you know, and I, I just don't have the skills to do that properly, you know? Um, I also think it's important to respect the professionalism of teachers. You know, teachers are much yes. more better placed to take um, theoretical understandings of how people learn and work out what implications that has for their for their own practice than I am. Um, so I think what we really need to solve this problem is have big teams of of uh, of basic researchers, of design researchers, and of practitioners working together to. To try these things out and because it's you know the idea that the, that's all the skills required to do all of those sorts of research and design work are going to be in one person just seems quite implausible to me
0: yeah no i agree and again forgive me for kind of derailing the conversation but you just one one more thing on this matthew because this is something that's been kind of swimming around in my head for a while and that is I think over the last, what will it be, four or five years, there's been a real increase in in interest from classroom teachers in terms of engaging with with, with research. And you only need to look at whether it be podcasts or some of the books that have come out. that, that are really really popular that, that shows there's a definite increase um, in interest but where I see this go a little bit wrong I'm very lucky to well before the pandemic to, to visit lots of different schools is and uh, again this this will this will annoy a few listeners but I'll just say it anyway it's whenever um kind of senior leadership teams get hold of a piece of research so we'll just return to Hatties seeing as we've mentioned mm. it already so you can imagine somebody's in charge of teaching and learning for a school getting hold of Hatties effect sizes and thinking wow okay so if we do feedback it's going to have a 0.8. Effect size. If we do this, it's going to have one point two. And the worst example of ever I saw of this was um, it then became like a lesson observation form. And when people were observing lessons, they were ticking. All right, there's an effect size of zero point eight. I've seen that. There's an effect yeah. size of one point two. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Now the the like the, the the less extreme form of that that I see is um, Tom Sherrington's wonderful book, Rosenshine's um, mm. Principles in Action. Now I think that can be that that's a, a really kind of teacher friendly way of taking that that research but where I see that go wrong is it's just it's posters stuck up all around the school and it's like all right if I'm aware of the names of these principles mm-hmm. and I know that they have been shown to be effective all of a sudden my teaching and learning's going to improve so so my my question after that big long ramble is Firstly, do you agree with me that there has been like an an increase in interest in research amongst the teaching community? But do you also fear that it can almost go too far, that it's enough just to be aware of research and then magically it's going to lead to increased improvements in teaching and learning, if that makes sense?
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it's certainly true. I think the examples you've given, um, it's definitely true that, that teachers are much more interested as a profession in research than than they were when I first came into the, you know, when I first started doing research, absolutely. I mean, research head is a good example of that Mm. and all sorts of other examples. Um, So I think the problem with research is that, you know, so when when someone publishes a piece of research, they're kind of expecting that if there's a problem with it, it's gonna be critiqued and um, improved upon by the research community um and so so it's part of a conversation rather than just a one-off piece of mm. you know and i think this is actually what's happened with hattie so hattie produces this book um which i think has got you know serious serious problems um to the point where i i really wouldn't recommend anyone spend much attention to it at all actually and there have been lots of critiques of it but the difficulty is is it's almost like there's, there's too much of a rush to um, yes. employ research in the classroom. You know, it seems to me that when, once someone does a piece of research, you really do need quite a long time for the conversation around it to settle in the research community before um, practitioners should be confident enough to say, OK, that this is pretty uncontroversial. So it seems mm-hmm. reasonable to use it. Um, so there's all sorts of statistical issues with Hattie. You know, I, I just think that the numbers he reports are more or less meaningless because they come from radically different research designs and it's quite easy to manipulate effect. Well, it's not even manipulating effect sizes. <clears throat> you know, one of the things as a, a good researcher tries to control noise in their experimental designs. You know, that's almost yes. the definition of a good researcher. You know, if you cleverly design your experiment, you minimize noise so you, you can detect the effect you're looking for more. And in Hattie's work that comes across as a bigger effect size because you've got a smaller um, standard deviation mm-hmm. so the idea that you can just take a standard uh, an effect size as a measure of learning outcomes conflates all sorts of different things it conflates the real effect of on the learning with the quality of the experimental design um, and it also there are some some situations that it's just easier to design uh, less noisy experiments than others and for those you'd expect higher effect sizes simply for that reason so i think there's big big problems with that and that conversation is now playing out in the research community and there's been various papers and discussions about this over the last i don't know five or six years maybe um so i guess the possibly the problem there is that we're too quick to try and transplant research findings direct to practice before there's been a chance for those critiques to emerge and being thought about and a consensus to be reached, perhaps, maybe that's one way of thinking about it
0: yeah it's it's really interesting, isn't it because it's it's obviously seen as a real positive to be research informed but the, but the, and it's again it, it's a definite positive thing to the, the professions more engaged in research but I mean I, I certainly don't possess the skills to to read a research paper and then think of all the kind of faults in it and method methodological issues and so on but you almost need to now right whether you're the, that teacher or you're the SLT because, you now you're aware of the research, so now let's start thinking: is this a valid piece of research? And then, and then once you've concluded it's it's valid, you've then got to think: well, what does how's this going to translate in, into the classroom? It's 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 a, a real big thing for teachers to do on top of all the other things that they've got they've got going on. It's difficult, yeah. isn't it?
1: So it's not clear to me. I mean, I totally agree with that, it's, but it's not clear to me that you should be reading. Well, I say you. I mean, you probably should because you, you write these wonderful books about <laughs> about research. But but it's not clear to me that your average classroom teacher should be spending their time reading research. You know, when mm-hmm. I write a research paper, I think really hard about my audience. But my audience is other researchers. You know, I, I oh, write. that's
0: interesting. That's so. You is is that right? So you, you you're not hoping that teachers will, will read it.
1: Um, I guess I'm no, not really. I mean, I, you know, if, if it comes down to it, I, you know, I think to myself, OK, how can I convey my message to, for my readership? So I, it's understandable. Mm. But the, the person I have in mind is another researcher who I want to persuade. Well, actually, it's the reviewer, really, the reviewer for the mm. journal. I want to persuade um, that I've done this right and that there's some interesting insight here. So it, it seems to me that, you know, an effective way of communicating research to teachers shouldn't be through journal papers. It should be through some other mechanism um, where, you know, the person who's writing that communication, um, you know, what, whatever it is, a book, a, um, a pamphlet, a, you know, an interview or whatever, is thinking about the audience that they're, you know, is thinking about the mm. teachers as the audience. Um, and, and then also if they're doing that properly, then they can sort of take into account the disputes in the research community and present a sort of balanced you know, when I write a research paper, I'm trying to put my point of view across, but I would hope when I'm talking to teachers, I'm a bit more, you know, I would hope I'm a bit more nuanced than that. And i say, well, you know, I think this, but there are some people who disagree and their view is this. Um, and I think without, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's very unreasonable to expect teachers to, to read research paper. Well, it's not even one paper's not enough, right? Because as I say. Yes, of course, of course. Um, you, you need to see the people who are complaining about that paper if there are any. Um, yeah, so I think we we're missing a kind of communication layer. No, not completely. There are some examples of this, um, and and that's where that kind of translation work should be done. I think, in my view.
0: Yeah, I, I I completely agree. But I guess then we get the we get the problems that we mentioned before, where you get this if you, if you've kind of not read the source then you get the, the the kind of translation issue and sometimes that translation becomes a, a poster that's stuck on the wall mm. because this summarizes it. But then obviously as soon as you start taking out the detail, you're missing the subtleties, you're missing the potential problems with it. And it becomes it becomes a headline or it becomes a box to tick in, yeah. in, in in a lesson plan. It's it's so difficult to get that balance right, isn't it? I think
1: that's right. But I I mean that you know in some sense that's just complaining about low quality work i mean yeah absolutely for any type of work there's going to be bad examples of it Mm. but there's also good examples of it and i think this issue crops up all the time you know if i when you're writing i mean some colleagues and i did this recently we wrote a textbook on mathematical cognition designed for sort of master's students and exactly the same issues arise there you know you're trying to summarize the state of a research field in a more accessible form Mm. and you're trying to do it um, in a way that's not biased in favor of this sort of group of people who are putting this view or, or vice versa. So it's not like we don't have examples of how to do this. Um, it's, it's just quite difficult. And there's a lot, there's a lot of very bad textbooks because it's quite difficult. <laughs> um, so yeah, absolutely. There's definitely bad examples of it. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't good examples of it either.
0: Um, can I ask? Um, you say obviously that you're you're not writing with with the teacher in mind. You're, you're writing for the audience, primarily of the, of the reviewer. Yeah. But as we've said, there's this increased awareness of um, of, of the te- uh, teachers more engaged in research and so on and so forth. Is is that a bit at the back of your mind now more so than it was in the past? That actually this may. The, the the takeaway from this research may reach a wider audience than perhaps it would have done say five years ago ten years ago is it, does that influence yeah. your your thinking at all
1: yeah i think it, yes it does um, yeah absolutely it does but i still think it so if i mean let me give you an example so a while back some colleagues and i did some work on self-explanation training in undergraduate mathematics which is this this technique designed to help people read mathematics um, in particular, in the undergraduate level, we were interested in helping students read mathematical proofs. And we, we this is based on a big load of literature in the educational psychology field about how generating your own explanations helps learning. And we, we developed these materials specific to the context of mathematics, and we tested them, and we did some eye movement studies on how it changed reading behavior and da da-da-da-da-da. And we ended up publishing this these materials and saying, actually, we think that lecturers who use these materials... Will, will be helping their students. Hmm. And then what we did is we wrote an article for the Notices of the American Mathematical Society, which is this sort of, um, I mean, I guess it is a journal, but it's a, really a sort of magazine for mathematicians, where we, we wrote a kind of um, lay summary of this whole programme of research um, and, and presented the results and, and explained the rationale, talked about the various studies we did, and said, and if you want to use them, here are the materials. And I guess that is the kind of model I think about when, when in this sort of communication with with school teachers as well. So you you're doing this research, and at the back of your mind, you've got okay. Hopefully, at some point in the future, this body of work, and I think that's important—the body of work, not mm. the individual paper. Yes, will be having some. Will hopefully be of interest to teachers, um, but at the the individual papers that make up that body. Are absolutely not written with teachers in mind they're written to persuade researchers but it might be the case that you get to a point where that whole body of work is ready for a sort of more holistic um you know sort of summary in a more uh, practitioner friendly um way of writing and then and then then i guess that's the point where you really start thinking okay we're writing this article for these mathematicians for these you know university teachers And we're going to spend, you know, we're really going to think about the best way of communicating with those people. Um, And, okay, you will get the odd, enthusiastic mathematician who will go and look at the original papers and good for them. But if they find them hard to understand, I kind of don't mind that much because they're not the intended audience.
0: yes. That makes perfect sense. Well, I'll tell you what, Matthew, I've, I've kind of hijacked the, the conversation <laughs> conversation here. there were just things that have been swimming around my head for a long time. So I thought, you're, as I say, you're, you're the man to, to help me get them clear. Um, but I've been asking um, other guests to, at this stage to, to choose a piece of research that they would like to talk about. Did you have, do you have one in mind, or is it just a, a, anything more general? What, what would you like to chat about? Well,
1: so actually, it's probably quite related to your, what you've been asking about, actually. So um, my colleague, Hugo... Uh, Lorty Forgs and I have recently been doing some work on on the role of randomized controlled trials in education research
0: oh nice, um,
1: which I get is is quite related because very much like Hattie, as you know, you know there 's the, the teaching and learning toolkit um, and the EEF present the results of various randomized controlled trials in a way that they hope is is accessible um, mm. to teachers and I think it 's really interesting this because a, a while back I got interested in the sort of different approaches to mathematics education research. And um, Colin Foster and I wrote a, wrote a historical article looking at how how the field has changed its sort of um, orientation to doing research over the last 50 years. And what what's really interesting is that, um, well, when was the EEF set up? I guess 2010 or thereabouts. Mm. Um, yeah, they've got a lot of money. They've, they've changed the field <laughs> of education research really radically in the UK. Yes. Um, they spend you know, vastly more money than any other education research funder on largely on RCTs only. And that's not quite true because they do also fund some reviews um, of the evidence and so on, but largely on RCTs. And Hugo and I were interested in what effects this has had um, and whether this is a sort of interest, you know, what is this a good way of spending research funding, basically? Um, and we, we, we did this... Um, Review of all the RCTs uh, released by the EEF and the NCEE, which is basically the American equivalent of the EEF, um, and we reanalyzed all their results using a slightly different method, um, to and came up with the conclusion that they were that a surprisingly large proportion of them didn't actually find anything out, <laughs> um, in a sort of technical statistical sense. So. And I think this is also quite interesting because when you read the, in terms of communication with teachers, because when you read the toolkit or the results of an EEF trial, you're presented with a, with a number, right? Months to mm. progress, which yes. is just the translation of the effect size in the RCT. But you're not presented with the uncertainty around that effect size. Um, mm. And actually any RCT that's conducted, you end up both with an estimate of the effect, um, but also with some kind of confidence interval which presents how noisy that estimate is or how, you know, how, how um, uncertain that estimate is compared to the true effect size if you, you know, if you applied this across the whole population. And it transpires that the effects that EEF um, and NCEE, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have a go at the EEF. This is a general problem with education research. And indeed, I should compliment the EEF because they're very transparent with all of their data um, which allows people to do these sort of reanalyses, but it transpires that the the results they tend to get very small effects, right? So, the vast majority of EEF and NCEE trials find very small effects, um, but they also find those effects within very large confidence intervals. Um, mm. So it, it turns out that around about forty percent of the the trials funded by both these bodies. Actually, don't allow you to conclude either that the intervention works, in some sense, or that it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, so if you end up with a very small effect, say you you you, you end up with an effect size of um, you know zero point zero five or something, then it really depends on whether what that means depends on how big the confidence interval around it is. If it's a very very tight confidence interval, then probably what you can conclude is that actually that intervention had no effect and it's not worth pursuing. But if the confidence interval is quite large, then that result is consistent both with the intervention having no effect and with the intervention having a real positive effect. And it transpires that a surprisingly large proportion of these extremely expensive trials are of the latter sort.
0: and can I just ask Matthew? Again, forgive my statistical naivety here, but could it go the other way as well? Could it be? I mean, obviously, it could go in the positive direction that it could have more of an effect than than is stated. Could it? Could it go the other way that it could? Some of these could be having a negative effect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the mean effect found in these trials is zero point zero six, which is so point oh six of a standard deviation, mm. which is tiny. Um, but the, uh, the mean confidence interval width is 0. 0.3. Wow. About. Um, so 0. 0.15 on either side. So that's consistent both with a small negative effect, um, a, an effect, a, a zero effect, but also, mm. with a, you know, a substantial real world, uh, significant effect, um, you know, so it's consistent with an effect of like 0.15 or 0.2, yes. which, which most people would consider to be a real substantial effect in an RCT. So when you're in that sort of situation, you end up thinking to yourself, well, this is, there's a problem here. You know, we're spending a lot of money on these important RCTs, but in a, in a large proportion of cases, we're not really finding much out. Um, And that's a bit unfair because most of these also have process evaluations and and observations and so on. So there are some things. But, but, you know, the point of doing an RCT is to have an accurate estimate of the impact. Um, So Hugo and I spent a bit of time sort of doing this analysis and then thinking about what kinds of what might be causing this and what can be done about it, really.
0: Well, you've, you've done a bit of a teaser there, Matthew. What, what, <laughs> I like that cliffhanger moment. What, what what did you find out?
1: Well, so the, the big finding was that 40% of these large-scale RCTs yep. are uninformative. And then we speculated that there were three three sort of possible reasons why this could be, right? So um, if you think about research very much as we've talked about, um, as having kind of three stages, you know, you've got the basic science where you're trying to understand um you know what, what, how learning works. What sort of things affect learning? Um, and it could be a problem there, right? So it could be that um, that a lot of the basic uh, science is is going wrong. And I think that's quite plausible because I don't know if you're familiar with um, the phrase the replication crisis.
0: Yeah. Do you just talk to me a little bit about that? That 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 was like pretty big, like last couple of years. I've seen a lot a yeah, lot yeah. of chat about that.
1: Yeah. So that's that's really the finding that that a surprisingly large proportion of papers in psychology um, and probably in education too, uh, don't don't replicate when you do them again. Um, and this was discovered, well, it's been going on for about 10 years, I suppose now. And it started off with the realisation, well, it started off actually, it's kind of interesting with this this guy, um, Darrell Bem, I think his name was, who wrote a paper claiming that it's possible to time travel basically <laughs> precognition he called it and he did this this very nice i mean it wasn't it was nonsense obviously but he did this like quite elegant series of experiments where he showed that people could predict so they they're sitting at a computer and they have to press a button and then some number flashes up or something like that and his, he basically showed that people could predict what the number was going to be before they saw it right. um, and what was so worrying about it, obviously we know that can't happen because of the laws of physics, but he, he used sort of standard techniques in psychology. So everything, you know, if you read the paper, you couldn't see a problem with it. it. It just looked, you know, exactly how this sort of research is normally done. And this is a big problem, right? So you end up thinking, right, how, and he did a, long, a lot of experiments of this sort in this paper. I think it was six or seven experiments. You know, It was a multi-experiment paper that all showed the same result. And this made people think, what on earth is going on here? This mm. tells us that there's some serious problem with the methods we're using. Um, and I think actually psychology as a field deserves quite a lot of credit for how it's responded to that. Um, and it's reali- I think the, the, the realisation has been that small little changes in methods as a, that weren't... Um, so, you know, when you're analysing some data there tends to be quite a lot of decisions you need to make so often you have some outliers and you need to exclude them but you get to decide what exactly counts as an outlier you know is it three standard deviations away from the mean is it two is it four um maybe you you, there's various different statistical analyses that you could use and you get to choose which one and by choosing the one that's more favorable to your hypothesis you can kind of push the push the Mm. dial slightly in that direction. Um, And I think everyone was always very aware that these were problems, but weren't quite aware as to how big problems they are potentially, how how big a difference it can make to research and the findings. And I think that's really the change. So since the BEM paper and various other work um, following up on that, I think people have become really aware that unless we sort our methodological approaches out much more rigorously than we were doing before... This sort of problem is a serious issue. Um, mm. So it's not implausible to say that a lot of basic science, including educational psychology um, and education, or at least quantitative education work, it might just be wrong because of because of uh, low methodological standards. Um, now it's really unclear how how true that is. You know, we just don't really know until someone does a big. Well, in fact, there is a group in Virginia at the moment doing a kind of a replication project on education. Research, but the results are not out yet. Uh, and
0: have, with that, Matthew, have any and this may be just in the field of psychology, but have any kind of big, kind of previously held truths kind of fallen away a little bit here when people have tried to replicate them, or has yeah, it more been these kind of smaller, smaller things no, that, that no, didn't have, have much been, evidence behind them?
1: There have been big ones, so well, there's several examples. So the really famous one is a thing called ego depletion, um, which was a big social psychology result and perhaps a more interesting one actually because it is educationally relevant is stereotype threat um i don't know if you're familiar with that
0: it's no not at all
1: so it's the finding that um suppose you get well the maths version of it is there's supposed to be this stereotype that girls are worse at maths than boys right mm. and the, the finding in the 90s was that if you get a load of kids to do a maths exam and you tell them beforehand that this exam has been shown to be gender neutral so that there's no gender differences in performance, hmm. then the girls do better than if you don't.
0: Ah, right. Okay. And there's various, and the idea
1: is that by getting rid of the stereotype, you're reducing the worry that the girls are having in this exam and they therefore do better. And you can do it in different ways as well. So there's also, there was a big important study, um, which found that if you ask people's gender before they do the test on some standardized test, then girls do worse than if you ask about the part of the, the examinee's gender at the end of the test. Um, wow. And this was a, I, you know, when I first started doing research, this was a pretty uncontroversial finding. Right. Um, and I think most people now just think this wasn't true. This isn't true. It's it's very in fact I tried to replicate that latter study fairly recently and we, we couldn't replicate that. So oh, I uh, yeah and I think that's important because people you know have to actually develop policy based on yes on that, those sorts of findings.
0: And you could just to go back to the previous point, Matthew, again, just to just to relate this to, to teachers, you could imagine the chain of events there, right? This, this, this the, the studies come out to support it, so then the action comes in terms of, right, okay, how do we build this into our curriculum? Let's get some training around it and so on. But then it's very hard to then wheel that back, isn't it? One, once yeah, you know, we don't replicate, it's really, yeah, really problematic, yeah, Oof. yeah,
1: yeah. So that's so it's as I say, so of the the, the the things that might contribute to these uninformative RCTs you know as you say if someone's developing an intervention designed to improve girls maths achievement based on that insight into how we learn it's not going to work probably because the underlying insight is not right
0: True. um
1: so that's, a, that's one possible issue um now it's you know I don't want to be too pessimistic because it's unclear how many it's unclear how many uh examples there are of that from the literature and it's also probable that the problem varies by sub-discipline so in a in a review where people try to replicate 100 important psychology papers the the there were bigger issues in social psychology than there were in cognitive psychology and things like that. Right. so you know it's it's but it's a possibility right it's there's a problem here and it, you know the slow process of sorting that out is is going on at the moment um Another problem is also what we touched on before about maybe there's a problem with translating basic insights into usable interventions. I think that's mm. definitely the case. That's really undervalued um, in the research community um, because it's not sort of, you know, it's not, nat- it's, not it's not sort of classical research. Um, and in most other equivalent disciplines, that's actually, you know, so if you think about um, medicine, you know, drug development, which I guess is in some sense analogous to curriculum resource development, is, is a whole field on its own compared to the people doing the basic biology research. Um, and we just don't sort of have many examples of people doing that kind of work. So I think probably there's a big big issue there. And then the final third possibility, which explains why these RCTs are, are not finding much out, is just to do with the design of the RCTs, the randomized controlled trials. Um, and I think there are serious design Issues that need to be thought about, in terms of, in particular, how um, what outcome measures people use. Um, so there's a big drive at the moment to use outcome measures that are that are supposedly of interest to teachers. You know, so key stage three tests or whatever, key stage two tests, or, or you know, some kind of standardized measure that teachers care about. And I think that has really serious implications because you know, if I'm doing an intervention that's supposed to improve algebra, but I'm evaluating it using a maths test that includes geometry questions, mm. you know, inevitably my effect is going to be much, much smaller because I'm not, you know, well, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to improve their performance on the geometry questions. And there's there's really interesting examples of this, actually. So one of my favourite examples is this, this trial that's going on at the moment um, about improving... Well, basically, it's it's if you get kids who are short-sighted to wear glasses, um, will that improve their reading? And obviously, that's a worthwhile... You know, it feels to me almost you don't really want mm. to do a trial there. Obviously, being able to see helps you do the reading. <laughs> but the question really that, that we're interested in is, does this intervention... Well, not we, I'm not doing the trial, but the, the research community is interested in the question, does this intervention, which somehow... I don't know the details, but it somehow involves... Getting opticians to work more closely with primary schools and da da, da da da. Um, does that actually lead to people wearing glasses who need them? But because this drive to have outcome measures that teachers are interested in, the trial, the primary outcome of the trial is a reading test, not a mm-hmm. how many kids are wearing glasses who need them count. And again, that's that is going to have the effect of deflating the effect size because there's just a load of noise in there to do with... Yes. So I think there's also design issues. And, I, you know, it feels to me that teachers are sensible enough to know that kids who wear glasses who need them are going to be better at reading. You don't really need to test that. Um, but you do need to test whether, um, you know, whether this, this intervention that involves opticians working with primary school teachers leads to more kids who need glasses reading them. But because of this this desire to have um, meaningful outcome measures, that's not the primary outcome. And I think you know that this has a, a tangible cost in that it reduces the effect of the intervention and means you need a massive sample size where previously you probably wouldn't.
0: Flipping out, Matthew. This is <laughs> this is problematic, this, isn't it? With those those three issues. I mean, well, what's the bottom line here? Let, let me put it this way. Um, well let, let's let's think of two different group two different groups here so let, let's start with somebody who's perhaps in charge of works in a school and is in charge of teaching and learning either across the school or perhaps they're within a subject like mathematics maybe they're the head of maths and so on and they come across perhaps one of these eef studies or something like that yeah. well what what should they be doing there is it a case of just ignore it is it a case of wait just wait a few months just to see what other people are saying about this because it's really difficult isn't it what would you advise for 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 somebody like that who's got quite a bit of influence within a school
1: so yeah i think there's different answers to that so i'm I, i think well firstly i think it's it would be a mistake to read the results of an rct and only look at the effect size you know i think it's also important to look at the the confidence interval and so the uncertainty around that effect size, and I think that that that's a very clear implication, I think, of this, and I would really recommend that. So never just say, okay, this has got one month of progress or two extra months of progress or whatever. Go and look at the effect size and the confidence interval, which are normally in the report.
0: Is, is that quite easy to find? I mean, you've obviously looked at these EEF ones. Is that fairly easy to find, like to, yeah. to sift behind the headline figure?
1: Not as easy as it should be, in my opinion, mm. um, because the Yeah, they have, so the EF have quite good reporting requirements, but they are, they do allow some flexibility depending on people's preferences. So different researchers have some different preferences about type. So for example, some, some people who run these trials prefer to use Bayesian statistics rather than frequentist statistics. And then they would be reporting a slightly different version of that confidence interval.
0: Mm. Um,
1: so they, yeah, it's, it's a bit problematic, I think. Um, that's one, I mean, I think actually the, gem, the general question of how to communicate the results of RCTs to teachers, I think is a really interesting question that also Hugo and I have done some work on. Um, and I think months of progress is actually not a not a great way of doing it. I think it tends to exaggerate the size of the effect. It's much better to talk about just raw scores, especially if they're raw scores on tests that teachers are very familiar with, like key stage tests. Um
0: it it just seems a no brainer not to have some measure of the, the 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 standard deviation or the confidence interval, like as, alongside that headline figure, doesn't it? Yeah, that no. that's a fairly, It's not as if that's a really complex thing to grasp. Just you know, it could go up this high or it could go this low, and this yeah. this is this is in the middle. It, 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 why isn't that standard?
1: So I think that the the difficulty. I mean, as I say, a lot of this is very new, right? So until about 10 years ago, there really weren't many, you know, the, the, the number of RCTs that have, in education that have been done is massively higher now than it was mm, 10 years ago. Yes. So there was this sort of quick rush to work out the best way of trying to communicate these findings to teachers. And I think the people who did it were doing a good, good you know, doing a good job, um, doing their best. But there's just not a big research literature on communication to draw on. Yes. Whereas yes. actually in medicine, there really is. So there's a whole... There's whole journals devoted to how to communicate medical research findings to doctors. Um, yeah, that's a really big research area. And it you know, it turns out there's interesting findings like, you know, if you use percentages to communicate um, death rates, then different interpretations are made than if you use number of people out of a thousand or, or whatever. Yeah, there's yes. interesting findings like this. People's statistical reasoning is, is not very... It's not very good. And they they use those findings to work out the best way of communicating um, medical research to to doctors. But we're just not really there yet in education. Um, But I guess, you know, I guess it'll come eventually.
0: That's interesting. So, yeah, sorry, I, I derailed you again, there, Matthew. So, we're talking about if you're somebody who's got a bit of influence over teaching and learning, you come across one of these 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 papers or these EF papers or whatever it is. Yeah, you've, let's assume you've had a bit of a delve through it and you, you've seen the the confidence interval.
1: Yeah.
0: What should What should you be doing next?
1: So, my view is that you the things you should com, uh, concentrate on are not single studies. Hmm. I think you should concentrate on summaries of the literature and so in fact one of the the big 3 you asked me to think about that I really like um, I was going to talk about at the end is the the deans for impact science of learning report and oh, I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with that are you, are you
0: I am yes yes I it's a, you're very good most of your most of your listeners will be
1: but I think that's a really interesting example if you contrast the way that that communicates research to the way, the, say, the toolkit communicates research, right? So there's actually no effect sizes in the deans for impact work at all. What, what what they do is they say, you know, here's a piece of theoretical understanding that the field has developed about how we learn. Here's some things that you might think about when you're applying this insight in the classroom. And it doesn't talk about the results of research studies at all. It, it tries to summarise mm. the sort of theoretical understanding that, that the whole field has been has been creating and it does it only on those topics. So I think there's six, six topics I think in there, only on those topics that are pretty uncontroversial. Yeah, you're really not gonna find many people who disagree with, um, with the testing effect, say. That's, that's not really that controversial these days. So in contrast, mm-hmm. if you try and focus on a single study, you've got this issue of maybe someone's going to come and point out a problem in its design. or Maybe someone's going to come and say, well, you didn't consider this factor. And then th- that's part of a communication, you know, a, a conversation that's going on in the literature. Whereas those sorts of science of learning documents, that conversation has kind of happened. And they're summarizing mm. the whole conversation for you rather than just one little bit of it. Um, so my view is that really that's probably... And I, this is all based on intuition, so don't assume I'm right about this. You know, as I say, there's not been much research done on, on research communication. But my sense is probably that's the best way of, of communicating research to teachers, to sort of focus on, on summaries of literatures rather than single studies.
0: It's, 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 I mean, I, I completely agree. I think they're fantastic. Is there a danger that we miss out on kind of innovative, like new things There, we, we have to wait, you know, five, 10, even more years for them to be the reviews done and it validated and so on. Is is there a role for perhaps it's an individual teacher or maybe it is one of these, these uh, people who oversee teaching and learning to read something and think, all right, actually, let, let's run with this. Let's give that a go. Or, or would you be advising people stick to the 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 things that have been much more long term long term established.
1: Well, I think it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, if you know, teachers are professionals and they know mm. they know what to do much better than I do in their classroom. So, you know, as long as I think the, the the situation I wouldn't want to happen would be for a teacher to have some serious problem that they want to address, go to the literature and be misled that this is a good solution for it. Because of mm. it. you know, but I think it's absolutely fine for a teacher to say, you know, well, let's let's try this out. I, I recognize that the evidence that this is based on is not, you know, is not as strong as some other, as it could be. But that, as long as I'm happy and recognize that, then, you know, I'm happy to use my professional judgment to, to take that into account and decide to do it anyway. That seems perfectly fine to me. But I think it's when, when, when the research evidence is misleadingly strong is the problem. Because then that yes. does distort professional judgment in a, in a really unhelpful way
0: yeah it's interesting in the, in the previous conversation the previous episode in this series I spoke to one of your colleagues about about cognitive load theory and I think that's a really interesting example because that's something that's been around for what 20 or 30 years now but it's only really in these last well since Dylan William bangs out that tweet in 2017 that it's really become prominent and I think that's a classic example of something that perhaps sometimes gets overstated in in its, its applications it also gets misinterpreted and some people think it's the holy grail but at the the other extreme some people because they see it overstated mm. think no that's a load of nonsense so ignore the whole thing there's there's, there's all those things going on as well isn't, isn't there and it's just to chuck into the mix and then I'll, I'll shut up is also you get Kind of prejudice is the wrong word, but but teachers' viewpoint on on pedagogy, that if you see a theory that kind of suggests direct instruction over kind of inquiry, or you see vice versa, a theory that su- suggests inquiry over direct instruction. So a good example for me here is, and I'll be completely on- honest about this. I read the cognitive load theory literature not in my head because I'm, I'm on the lookout for it to validate things yeah. I believe. I read the literature on productive failure looking for problems in the, in the design because I, I, it doesn't fit in with, with, with my kind of beliefs and pedagogy and so on. So you've got all those issues as well, haven't I mean, you? You've got teacher bias, yeah. I guess, is, is, is the phrase I'm looking for. But
1: that's not necessarily a bad thing, though, right? I mean, it, you know, because I think it's, you know, if you, if you read sort of philosophy of science stuff – you know, it's fi- actually fine for individuals to have bias as long as that bias is sort of distributed around the community. Mm, yes. So as long as there's someone doing the reverse of you somewhere and you're willing to have a discussion about it, you know, so if you're, yeah, as long as you're not, you know, going to be you know, completely dishonest and whatever, but it's fine for you to have a slight bias in favour of one finding, as long as someone else has got a slight bias in favour of the other, and then you can yes. have a big discussion. And the community as a whole, hopefully will reach some consensus on this, and indeed, maybe it's actually a positive for some people to be biased because then they're really going to try and hold on to to this finding and, and make sure that before it's done away with, you know, the, the criticism is really, really strong because they're going to defend it no matter what. Maybe that's a positive, as a you know, some some philosophers of science would say that's actually a, a good thing.
0: That's interesting. Do you, do you have any take yourself um, personally on on cognitive load theory? Not the theory itself, but on how it's increasing prominence. Is that of interest to you as, as a research, how something like this can essentially lay fairly dormant for so long and then just blow up?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I, I, I don't really know that much about the big disputes about it that are going on at the moment. I mean, my take on the theory as a whole is it's it's should... I mean, the bottom line of it is simply um, that we have a limited working memory capacity and that should be taken into account when teaching and that that feels to me to be pretty unproblematic Mm. um i mean that's just yeah i don't be very you you struggle to find many psychologists who would disagree with that so the question then is whether that basic insight which seems to me to be completely right gets used in an inappropriate way um and I, I, to be honest with you, I just don't know enough about how it's being used at the moment to to be able to have an opinion on that. But I think, you know, the fundamental research insight seems sound to me. Yeah,
0: fantastic. And um, was there anything else you wanted to say just about um, kind of research in general, just before we move to reflections in your big three, Matthew?
1: Well, I mean, one thing to say, I guess, is the, the other interesting consequence of this, um, of these uh, imprecise estimates of effect sizes in trials, is this this interesting consequence of that is that you tend to um, have a, well, one, one interesting consequence is if you have trials with wide confidence intervals, and you then only want to think further about the trials that have big effects, because you want to only find you know the promising interventions, mm. it transpires that when you're selecting based on the size of the effect, the ones you select are probably going to be exaggerated. You know, they're probably going to have exaggerated effects. Mm. And some colleagues and I, are, because you know, if you're, because uh, trials with bigger big confidence intervals um, can only, you know, the, the prob- and you're only selecting those at the top of the range, so around the true effect, some trials will be high up and some will give estimates that are high and some will give mm. estimates that are low. If you're only selecting the high ones... Then probably they're misleading in a systematically biased way. Yes. Um, so then, what's interesting is if you if you're then saying using these trials to to regrant another trial. So you you have one trial and you say oh that was promising let's do another bigger one. You would expect most of those bigger trials to find much smaller effects. Yes. And indeed, that's what we find. Um, so I think this is a this is an interesting nasty consequence not only of Misleading original trials, but also wasting a lot of money on subsequent trials. <laughs> um, yeah, so some colleagues and I have been trying to quantify this recently. This thing we call promising trials bias.
0: Um, <laughs> that was nice, flipping heck! Well, this this blow my mind. Uh, this and this, Matthew, actually. Um, just uh, it's probably time for just one reflection, and then we'll move on to your big three. So, um, is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about?
1: Um, yeah. So. I think probably the best example of that would be um, the approximate number system and the the so-called symbol grounding problem. So this is is the question of how number symbols gain their meaning for young children. Um, And when I first started working in the area, um, most people had been very influenced by this Stanislav Dahahn book, which which suggested that the so-called approximate number system, which is this idea that when you when you see, say, uh, you know, fifteen ducks, you get a sense of fifteenness. Um, mm. or when you see, you know, ten apples on a tree, you get a sense of 10 Um and there's various evidence that that very young children have this sort of a, approximate number sense and so do animals and, and and so on. And there was a very strong view in the literature when I first started that this was probably how numbers gain them you know, symbolic numbers gain their meaning, some kind of extension of this approximate number system sense. And um and I sort of and it's a lovely theory, right? It's it's
0: yeah it sounds great. It
1: you know, sort of fits together really nicely and it kind of explains a lot of stuff and it links has a nice evolutionary account, you know, because you can say you know, if you're a if you're a lion chasing gazelle or something, you would want to be able to see which pack of gazelles got the most gazelle because you would want to chase them. There. So it's got this. It all fits together very nicely.
0: I'm sensing a twist coming yeah, in well, there, market,
1: And right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm now very, very skeptical of this, and and I think not everyone in the community certainly, but there's now a growing number of people who are quite skeptical of this and, and think that a lot of the original findings, including some some of mine, um were due to methodological problems in the design of the stimuli used in the experiments. Um, and that probably the answer to the, the symbol grounding problem, so how how symbols get their meaning, has probably got much more to do with ordinality and, and generalizing the count sequence rather than this sort of magnitude um, sense. But that's, a, that's a, an ongoing debate in the community, so I, I, don't, I don't want to give the impression that that that's resolved but certainly I've very much changed my mind about that
0: and is, is that tough Matthew like I, I know it's kind of held up as as that's one of the the strengths of science that you you kind of you come up with a theory and then it's you throw it out there and you, you want people to look at it and try and tear it apart and so on and that's really one of the strengths of the scientific discipline but it must be so hard right when you you're involved in something you believe in it you you find a finding that supports it to then look back and say mm, i'm not so sure anymore is is that tough or is, is that okay
1: um i think it depends on how associated you are with the finding i mean so i <clears throat> i was never one of the people who you know, if you ask someone who's the big approximate number system people they wouldn't say me um <clears throat> they would say various other people so i was never personally that attached to the theory i just really liked it and i thought it made a lot of sense so i guess it's easier easier for me to just i mean i do think that that view of science as a whole is is very wrong i mean people were very reluctant to oh. give up on their their theories and as i say i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because mm. it, it contributes to the, you know it's, if if everyone just abandoned their theories when they ran into problems you wouldn't ever get anywhere
0: um, yeah,
1: you need to try and resolve the problems and try and work out the issues with the problems, um, and that's that seems to me to be positive. So I think holding on to problematic theories is is a good thing, as long as, long as you don't do it for too long, you know. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. Okay, well, let's hand over to you for your big three. So do you want to do you want to mention and Dean's for impact first? So you? You've yeah.
1: So that's that um. Yeah. So that's the. I just think it's a really nice example of research communication and it's, it's very short and it seems to me that if every um, teacher and university lecturer in the world read that report, teaching would, would, the quality of teaching would improve quite, quite dramatically. Actually it's, it's, it's quite simple. It's quite easy to understand and I think it communicates findings really well. And when I think to myself about how I kind of use that as my model of this is a really good example of research communication. Um, Mm. So I'm sure many of your, your listeners will be familiar with it, but um,
0: yeah. I... It's, never come, it's never come up in a big three, you know, Matthew. Oh, so right. that's, that's interesting. It's one of those that you kind of assume people are aware of, mm. but I think certainly since Rosenshine gained prominence in the last few years, I think the Dean's for Impact stuff has kind of fallen under the radar. It would so be great to, to, mm. to remind people of that. Mm, that's
1: interesting.
0: Um, yeah, what, what's number two?
1: Um, so a colleague of mine, uh, Charles Crook from uh, Nottingham, He's a good friend of mine has just set up a new website called researchingeducation.com um, which I quite like it, it's designed to be a <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with the conversation the the website which um, is across all of all research areas and, and has sort of lay summaries of of research um,
0: no I'm no I'm not
1: so it's a, yeah it's an interesting thing it's sort of I'm not quite sure of who runs. I think it's run by a consortium of universities. But the idea is that when you get a uh, a research finding, you want to sort of communicate to to the world. Um, maybe this is a good way of doing it. And, and Charles has set up this site, researchingeducation.com, which is sort of designed to be a an education focused version of that. So it has some interesting um, kind of pieces which summarize different research uh different pieces or bodies of research or, or particular projects um designed for for teachers to, to read and you can subscribe to it so you get an email when new ones come out and so on. Um, and i think it's a really nice idea and i, I kind of hope it's a success really so i'm i i was recommended recommending that so that um so that that gets a wider audience
0: oh fantastic no i've not heard of that That'd, yeah brilliant excellent choice what about number three
1: So the third one is a book by a guy called James R. Brown from Toronto, who wrote a really wonderful book called The Philosophy of Mathematics, A Contemporary Introduction to the World of Proofs and Pictures, um, which is a really nice philosophy book, in my view. So I think there's a problem with a lot of philosophy of mathematics. It's quite hard to read, and it's quite technical and dry, and this is a, uh, a really fun book to read, which is this sort of full-throated defense of Platonism. So the idea that mathematical objects are really out there in some, in some meaningful sense. And, and our job is to try and perceive them using the mind's eye, which is some crazy theory, right? I mean, it's a really bizarre <laughs> idea for a scientist to be subscribing to. Um, but his, his, uh, his defense of it is just so much, so good fun. It's, it's a wonderful book to read. Um, and it makes you realize what well, one thing I really enjoy about engaging with philosophy is that they take these apparently crazy theories, um, and you, you first think about, you know, this is this seems mad to me, how any of could believe this, and then half a book later, you're, you're believing it <laughs> yourself, you know, yeah, it's just completely. And I, yeah, so I really like that book. And it, anyone who's interested in philosophical matters in education. I would, um, in maths education, I would uh, absolutely recommend James Brown's Philosophy of Maths book.
0: Wow, excellent choices for, for, for the big three there, Matthew. Um, well, this, is, this has been a brilliant conversation. I've absolutely loved this. And what's been nice is this, it's one of those that, it's good to listen to and then revisit some of the other god hundred and odd episodes that i've done it <laughs> in the show where, where we've talked about research because again well, I, I've, I've been guilty of this i've cited one-off papers that i talk about them in my takeaways and so on but you just this has really brought to life some of the potential issues with that and some of the things that we should consider so it's yeah it's been absolutely fascinating matthew so um thank you so much for your time no, today.
1: thanks for the invite i appreciate it. i enjoyed it very much
0: There was my interview with Matthew Inglis. I really hope you enjoyed that one. Um, As I said at the start, I genuinely think this is one of the most important conversations, purely on a selfish level, that I've had on on this episode. Um, just to kind of revisit my journey with educational research, I've I've mentioned this tons of times before, so you'll be be sick of me banging on about this. But I'd never read a single paper for 12 years, never even thought about reading um, educational research for 12 years. And it was only when I started speaking to the world's leading experts on my podcast and they started citing research and books. I thought I better get my head into this, otherwise I'm going to sound even more clueless than, than I already do. And what followed then was my, what I call my mid-career crisis, where I started questioning everything I once held dear. And that led to my first book, How I Wish i Taught Maths. But what I now realise, and it's really this conversation with Matthew that's really brought this into the forefront of my mind, is that when i was going through this mid-career crisis and i was reading this educational research i was just taking everything as verbatim because i was so shocked that the people had actually studied things like working memory long-term memory cognitive load theory retrieval all this kind of stuff it was such a revelation to me that all my attention was just on essentially trying to process what this research was saying as opposed to taking that step back and thinking Is this research sound? And then crucially, what, you know, how does it, how has it been tested and and how does that relate to what I should do as a a practicing classroom teacher? So I'm in the phase of my career now where I'm trying to be a little bit more selective with the research I read and also just be a bit more savvy when it comes to evaluating that research. Because there's a real danger that, um, you know, in flawed studies, you, you can find anything that you want. And I, I've not got that critical eye to, to say, is, is this is this actually a valid piece of research and so on. So since speaking to Matthew, I've, I've really been thinking hard about this. So I just want to just chat for a little bit about that now, if, if that's all right in this takeaway. And if it isn't, all right, you can just press stop and nobody will ever know, know any different. Um, so the first thing is, it, it's interesting to think about those challenges of, of actually designing educational research. I, I've thought about this, you know, I'm, I'm in the process at the moment of, of writing a paper or co co-authoring I should say and I'll tell you what my role couldn't be more minimal Uh, with Dr Colin Foster and my colleague uh, Dr Simon Woodhead at ED and we're, we're, um, we're using data from diagnostic questions to look at the role that confidence plays in learning, specifically with regard to the hyper correction effect. So the finding that high confidence errors seem to be better corrected than low confidence errors. Now, what's interesting about that is that um, we can use data that already exists on the diagnostic questions platform from tens of thousands of students, hundreds of thousands of answers and so on. So you don't have to go into this live classroom setting and deal with all the potential confounding variables and so on. But even that, which to me seems like relatively simple, right, we'll just take some data from, from the website. We can measure confidence, we can measure accuracy. So let's just compare the two. Um, Simon and I and Colin presented this to, to colleagues at, at Loughborough from the, the, the Maths Research Centre recently. I wouldn't say we got torn apart, but questions were being asked about our method and our procedures. I was thinking, you know, what I haven't even thought about that. And this is a relatively straightforward piece of research. Now, you compare that to something where you are essentially getting kind of live students there and then in the moment. And perhaps you're you're either filming them or you're removing them from the classroom setting. And you find something out and then you're trying to say that this has wider implications. Well, then you've got a whole load of questions because you've got all these variables that's incredibly hard to control for. And um, the, the incentives for everybody involved, the, the day of the week, the time of the day and, and all these kind of things, the environment and so on. So as I, as I was chatting with with Matthew about this, I asked him the question, essentially, should we, should we dismiss it? Is there any... Is there any validity to, to this educational research when so much of it seems to be conducted in situations that are so far removed from what teachers would experience on a day-to-day basis? And I think what I've come to realise is that, that I certainly need to be a bit more sceptical and a bit more questioning of, of educational research, far more so than I was, say, you know, four or five years ago. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say, certainly for me anyway, that there are certain best bets. There are certain practices that we are pretty sure because they've been kind of confirmed and validated and replicated over the years that there are pretty good bets if we want to um increase our students learning let's say to 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 put a label on it so things like um providing opportunities for students to retrieve something that they've learned in the past at a regular point in the future seems to be a pretty good bet seems to be a you know a a pretty solid thing to to be doing with students and being careful not to overload students with redundant information or not to talk whilst they're trying to read things seems to be pretty good bet. So I, I think that's where I'm at the moment. There are certain things that, that I came across when I was writing How I Wish I Taught Maths that there seem to, seems to be backed up enough that I'm willing to, to say, yeah, all right, I'm happy with those. But some of the other things where I'd find like the, a little odd paper about it I'm I'm not so sure and it's it's really interesting because as I mentioned with Matthew I think without knowing it obviously biases creep in <laughs> when I was when I was writing, writing how I wish I taught maths and I started reading research papers and they were the I was starting to you know put together this narrative all right okay so so it's a really good idea to do this low stakes quizzes and it's a really good idea to make sure students are fluent in, in certain facts before they problem solve and I was building this narrative and then I'd read a paper that just said the exact opposite, and I thought, "Are oh, you flipping winding me up here? Why, why can't why can't things be simple?" And there's, it's a real temptation to ignore ignore that paper or, or look for flaws in that paper that doesn't quite fit the narrative that that you want to want to spin. So I've I've got to be very much aware now to have a, a bit more of a critical eye, I think. And it's again, it goes against human nature, but it's it's something that's going to be really important. And effect size is a is a really interesting thing. That's. It's one of, certainly a couple of years ago, that was probably the most kind of mainstream piece of research, certainly that I encountered in, in the schools I was lucky enough to visit, because it, it's easy to latch on to. This has a bigger effect size than this, so we should be doing this. It, it fits into what I was saying about best bets, but the thing with effect sizes, particularly when you start putting numbers on it and it starts to account, you know, for, for different um, kind of fast track students by certain amounts of months of learning and so on, it becomes... Uh, it becomes really, really tempting to, to really buy into that because we love measuring things as as, as teachers and certainly senior leaders and so on. Um, I, I'd like to mention, if you're interested in knowing more about effect sizes, I thought Matthew provided a, a, a fantastic, absolutely fascinating overview. But m- my two favourite sources on this are both podcasts by Ollie Lovell, a um, uh, teacher over in Australia, who's been on this podcast a couple of times. He runs the Excellent Education Research Reading Room podcast. Um, a, a couple of years ago now, um, he did a double bill on effect sizes first interviewed Adrian Simpson who was really critical of John Hattie's work and Adrian he unleashed a deluge of <laughs> real kind of ripping apart the methodology that Hattie had used but in a real clear way to, to understand I you know it's one of the few things that I've been managed to get my head around when it came to effect sizes but then as in the interest of balance, the next episode Ollie has John Hattie on, who defends effect sizes, and it's fascinating to listen. Ollie's an incredibly skilled and, and well-read re- uh, interviewer, so um, it's it's a fascinating double bill. I'll put links to those in the show notes page in, in case you want to follow that up a bit more. So um, th- this has all led me to start to think. Given the limitations of educational research, given the problems with things like the EEF findings and effect sizes and so on, given the time constraints that we as teachers find ourselves, and the fact we can only be experts in certain things, how on earth should teachers engage with research? Well, the way I'm thinking about it now is I think a good place to start is to find a curator that you trust. So a curator of research that you trust. Now that might be a colleague in your school who's particularly keen on on reading around things. You may have a research lead in your school. I know quite a few people do, or you might know of a research school in the area, and perhaps they, if they don't already, they could send around a newsletter or a summary of uh, you know once every fortnight of what they've been reading, with a link to you know perhaps a quick summary of it, and then a link to the original paper so you can engage with it. I think a, a curator that you know and trust is a good way. And um, it may, if you don't have that kind of locally within your school or with a neighboring school. Perhaps it's an organization, perhaps perhaps it is the EEF or perhaps it's the learning scientists or someone who you trust who, who covers a wide range of research that you think yeah okay this this is a good place for me to start they, they've already sifted through some of the stuff so they're, they're bubbling up the stuff that they think is important so let me start with that or it may be somebody that um, you follow on Twitter or a blogger that you like so for me someone like Tom Sherrington I find to be uh, particularly um, well balanced when it comes to evaluating re- research if you read um, his book The Learning Rainforest it's it's kind of like both sides of the fence. Um, he goes into whether it's inquiry or whether it's direct instruction and so on. So I don't think it's it's practical or feasible for us teachers to try and get our heads around every bit of research that's out there. So I think a good place to start is a curator that you trust, either somebody local or an organization or or perhaps somebody who's a blogger or a, t- a tweeter that you that you respect their opinion. As I mentioned, have a critical eye. Um, we all have biases. I know I'm, I'm absolutely rammed full of them these days. I try and go out my way now to engage more with research that goes against what I what I think. So an example of that is the productive failure research. And um, it's come up a couple of times on this podcast series. I'm aware that I dismissed it too early on um, because it didn't fit in with with my views on um, kind of that explicit instruction and so on. But now I'm whenever I hear anything about productive failure, I really try to re- read it carefully and try and engage with it just just to make sure that I'm not, you know, susceptible to these biases or try and reduce my susceptibility. And finally, this is the last thing I want to say, and I think this is really, really important. No matter how robust the finding seems to be, no matter how strong the recommendation seems to be, I think the key question that we all need to ask ourselves when when engaging with educational research is what would this actually look like for me in my situation, in my school, knowing my kids the way I do, knowing my challenges and constraints the way I do? Because we are ultimately the people who are going to put these findings or these recommendations into practice and, and again, every classroom situation is different. Every class of students is different. Every teacher is different. So it's about finding ways to take these best bets, to take these these core findings from educational research, and then think, what's it gonna take to make this work for me, make it work for my students? Because you can take the strongest finding in the world, but unless your students engage with it, and unless you engage with it, it's an absolute waste of time. I mean, you take something like um, like retrieval that I mentioned before. Um, it's seems to be a pretty safe bet that if we um, if we provide opportunities for our students to retrieve things that they once knew they're going to remember it better so a, a takeaway from that might be that you introduce low stakes quizzes as a regular part of your students diet they mark them themselves they assign confidence scores all the things that I bang on about in in my talks and in my books But here's the thing, if your kids don't buy into that and therefore put zero effort into it or they think it's a high stakes quiz or all of a sudden it becomes a high stakes assessment. So they start not uh, engaging as much with it or not putting effort in or trying to cheat and so on. Or if you introduce it into your team and your department and they think, oh, God, this is extra workload. I can't be bothered with this. Or they don't see the rationale behind it. And they think, "Well, this is a waste of time. I'd rather just keep teaching my kids the new content. Then it's going to fall flat on its face. So it's, for me, it's all about thinking, what would this look like for me in my situation, given the, my knowledge of my students, my class, my colleagues, my school, and so on and so forth. And that for me is the most effective way to engage with, with educational research but anyway i've rambled on enough i I, have, I absolutely love this conversation it's one i'm going to return to you know i almost feel like this podcast is, is kind of coming full circle now Um, i started out as uh, absolutely clueless Um, there's no doubt about that now in those first few episodes um, when i was interviewing people from the awarding bodies it wasn't about research or anything like that and then in those early episodes where whenever people like dylan william came on and greg ashman and stuff we went research mental with chris bolton and so on and now it feels feels like what, four or five years later, we feels feels about the right kind of time to have one of these these episodes where we actually dig into what the flaws, the potential problems with educational research, what makes good research and so on and how we can be perhaps as teachers a bit more critical about it. So, God knows where we go from here with the podcast, but I'll tell you what we've still got uh, three more of these uh, this research and action series to, to go so that's that's not a bad place to start. So, uh, all that remains for me to do is thank uh, Matthew again for his time, absolutely love this. Uh, Colin Foster for helping me, me uh, organise and put together this series podcast podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show and to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in it's been really nice i've been doing quite a few um, online events over the last couple of weeks and people have said that they've been really enjoying this research and action series it's tricky because I, I never know how well these things are going down i only can ever go off statistics in terms of download numbers and stuff so if you're enjoying these and you, you get time to give us a bit of a shout out on twitter or something just fe- feeds my ego a little bit and <laughs> makes me really make it just makes that means that i can make sure the podcast is going in the direction that people find useful if that makes sense anyway i'm going to shut up you take care of yourselves bye for now